Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. You're listening to The Dry by Jane Harper. Read for you by Stephen Shanahan. Chapter 39 Whitlam's office was empty. His wallet was gone, along with his keys and phone. His jacket still hung from the back of the chair. Perhaps he's popped out, said a nervous secretary. His car's still here. He hasn't, said Falk. Barnes, you get to his house. If his wife's there, detain her. He thought for a moment, turned back to the secretary. Is Whitlam's daughter still in class? Yes, I believe... Show me. Now. The secretary was forced to jog down the corridor to keep pace with Fork and Rako. Here, she said breathlessly at a classroom door. She's in here. Which one? Fork said, searching through the small window for the child he'd seen in Whitlam's family photo. Ah, there, she pointed. Blonde girl, second row. Fork turned to Rako. Would he leave town without his child? Hard to say, but I don't think so. Not if he could help it. I agree. I think he's close. Fork paused. Call Clyde. They must be nearly here. Get roadblocks out. Then gather everyone we can get with search and rescue experience. Rako followed Fork's gaze out of the window. Behind the school, the bushland sprawled dense and heavy. It seemed to shiver in the heat. It gave nothing away. Going to be some bloody hunt, Rako said, putting the phone to his ear. Best hiding place in the world out there. The search and rescue crews formed up shoulder to shoulder, a splash of high-vis orange along the bushland track. The gums were whispering and rattling overhead as the wind tore through. Gusts whipped up the dust and grit, forcing them to squint and shield their eyes. At their backs, Kiwara sprawled out, squat and shimmering under its heat haze. Fork took his place in the line. It was midday, and already he could feel the sweat pooling under his reflective vest. To his side, Rako was grim-faced. Radio's on, ladies and gents, the search and rescue crew leader called through a megaphone. And it's tiger snake territory here, so watch your feet. Overhead, a chopper whopped hot air down. The leader gave the word and the orange line stepped forward almost as one. The bushland closed behind them, swallowing them tight. Towering gums and thick scrub growth separated the team as they delved deeper, and within a few paces, Fork could see only Rako to his left and one orange jacket in the distance to his right. Probe searching, the leader had explained to them with definite impatience. Good for dense bush. The searchers would line up, and each walked directly into the bush ahead, checking along their own line until their path was blocked. Theory is if we can't get through, your principal's not about to either. You get blocked, you turn around and come back to the path, the leader had said, thrusting a jacket at Fork. Just keep your eyes open, it can get hairy in there. 
Falk pushed onward. It was strangely silent apart from the crackle of dry twigs underfoot and the wind whipping through the branches. The sun was high and white, forcing its way through occasional gaps in the trees like a searchlight. Even the noise of the chopper seemed muffled as it swooped high overhead like a bird of prey. Falk stepped cautiously, the patchy sunlight playing tricks on the ground. He wasn't completely sure what signs he should be looking for and felt sick at the thought of missing them. He hadn't done a full-scale bush search since his police training, but he'd spent enough time among these trees when he was younger to know they dragged you in far more easily than they let you go. A heavy bead of sweat stung the corner of his eye and he wiped at it impatiently. The minutes ticked on. Around him the trees seemed to get closer together with every step and Falk found himself having to lift his feet higher as he waded through the tall grass. Straight ahead he could see a thicket, sprawling and overgrown. Even from that distance it looked tangled and impassable. He was nearly at the end of his line. No Whitlam. He took his hat off and ran a hand over his head. No shouts of success had made their way along the row of searchers. The radio on his belt was silent. Had they missed him? The image of Luke lying flat on his back in his ute flashed in Falk's head. He put his hat back on and pushed forward, forcing a path through the overgrowth towards the thicket. The going was slow, and he'd gained only a few metres when he felt a stick bounce off his jacket. Falk looked up in surprise. Some distance to his left and a few paces ahead, Rako had stopped and turned towards him. He was holding his finger to his lips. Whitlam, Falk mouthed silently. Maybe. Rako mouthed back, raising one hand in an uncertain gesture. He lifted his radio to his lips and murmured something. Falk scanned the surrounds for any other splash of orange. The nearest searcher was a distant spot behind a curtain of trees. Falk crept towards Rako, wincing as his footsteps crunched loudly against the undergrowth. He looked to where his friend was pointing. A fallen log had created a hollow in front of the thicket. Barely visible, but so very out of place against the backdrop, something pink and fleshy peeped out. Fingertips. Rako pulled out his police-issue pistol. I wouldn't... Whitlam's voice floated out from the log. He sounded oddly calm. Scott, mate, it's us. Falk forced himself to match the tone. Time to give it up. There are 50 people in here looking for you, only one way out. Whitlam's laugh floated up. Ha! <laughs> There's always more than one way out, he said. Jesus, you cops lack imagination. Tell your mate to pocket his weapon, then he can get back on that radio and tell the others to back off. Not going to happen, Rako said. His pistol was aimed at the log, steady in his hands. It is. Whitlam stood up suddenly. He was filthy and sweaty, with a web of fine scratches standing out purple against his ruddy cheek. Steady there, he said. You're on camera. Whitlam pointed one finger overhead to where the police chopper loomed against the cloudless sky. It appeared and disappeared against the gaps in the treetops as it circled in a wide arc. Falk wasn't sure if it had seen them. He hoped so. 
Whitlam suddenly thrust his arm out straight in front of him like a low Nazi salute and took a step away from the log. He was clutching something in his fist. Stay back, he said, rotating his hand. Fork caught a first glint of metal and his brain screamed, Gun! while a deeper part flitted frantically, trying to process what he was seeing. Rako tensed next to him. Whitlam unfolded his hand, finger by finger, and Fork's breath left his chest. He heard Rako groan long and deep, a thousand times worse than a gun. It was a lighter. Chapter 40 Whitlam flicked the lighter open and the flame danced dazzling white against the dull bushland. It was the stuff of nightmares. It was a tangled parachute, failed brakes on the motorway. It was a premonition and Falk felt the fear flood from his core until it prickled against his skin. Scott! Falk started, but Whitlam held up a single finger in warning. It was an expensive lighter, the kind that stayed lit until it was closed manually. The flame shivered and danced in the wind. In one movement, Whitlam reached down and whipped a small flask out of his pocket. He flipped off the cap and took a sip. His eyes never leaving theirs, he tilted the flask and poured a trickle of the amber liquid on the ground around him. The whiskey vapours hit fork a moment later. Call it an insurance policy, Whitlam shouted. The spark fluttered as his outstretched arm shook. Scott, Rako yelled. You stupid bastard, you'll have us all with that, you included. Then shoot me if you're going to. But I'll drop it. Fork shifted his weight, and the leaves and branches under his feet cracked and snapped. Two years without decent rainfall and now doused in alcohol. They were standing on a matchbox. Somewhere behind them, Invisible but linked by an unbroken chain of gums and grass lay the school and the town. Fire would barrel along that chain like a bullet train, he knew. It surged and jumped and gorged itself. It raced like an animal. It ravaged with inhuman efficiency. Rako's arms were shaking as he trained the pistol on Whitlam. He turned his head a fraction towards Fork. Rita's somewhere down there. His voice was low and his teeth clenched. I'll shoot him dead before I let him light this place up. Fork thought of Rako's vivacious wife, weighed down by her pregnancy, and raised his voice. Scott, there's no chance of you getting out of here if that flame hits the ground. You know that. You'll be burned alive. Whitlam's head jerked in a tiny spasm at the suggestion, and the lighter jolted in his hand. Fork sucked in a sharp breath, and Rako took half a step back and swore. Christ, bloody watch that thing, will you? Rako shouted. Just stay back, Whitlam said, regaining control. Put your gun down. No. You haven't got a choice. I'll drop it. Close the lighter. You first. Gun down. Rako wavered, his finger white on the trigger. He glanced at Fork then reluctantly bent and placed his gun on the ground. Fork didn't blame him. He'd seen what bushfires could do. A neighbour had lost his home and 40 sheep one summer when a controlled burn had got out of hand. 
Falk and his father had tied rags across their faces and armed themselves with hoses and buckets as the noon sky turned red and black. The sheep had squealed until they hadn't any more. The fire had screamed and roared like a banshee. It was terrifying. It was a flash of hell. The land was drier now than it had been then. This would be no slow burn. In front of them, Whitlam was flipping the lighter open and closed like a toy. Rako followed the action in mesmerised horror, fist clench. The helicopter hovered directly overhead, and in his peripheral vision, Fork could see a handful of orange vests dotted in the trees. They'd been warned to keep their distance, no doubt. So you worked it out then? Whitlam sounded more interested than angry. The trust money! He flicked the lighter open and this time left it burning. Fork's heart sank. He tried not to look at the flame. Yes, he said. I should have seen it before, but you hid the gambling well. Whitlam sniggered. An odd, sinister little noise whipped away by the wind. I've had a lot of practice at that. Sandra warned me. She said I'd pay for it one day. Hey. Whitlam pointed the lighter at them and Rako made a primitive sound in the back of his throat. Listen. Sandra had nothing to do with this, right? She knows about some of the gambling, but she didn't know how bad it was. Or about anything else. Promise me you understand that. She didn't know. Not about the school funds. Or the Hadlers. His voice stumbled at the mention of the family, and he sucked in a sharp breath. I'm sorry about the little boy, Billy. Whitlam winced as he said the child's name. He looked down and pushed the lighter lid closed. Fork felt a first flutter of hope. I never thought Billy would get hurt. He wasn't even supposed to be there. I need you to believe me. I I tried to keep him safe. I want Sandra to know that. Scott, Fork said. Why don't you come with us, mate, and we can go and find Sandra and tell her that. As if she'll have anything to do with me now, after what I've done. Whitlam's cheeks shone with tears and sweat. I should have let her leave me years ago when she first wanted to. Let her take Danielle and get far away from me and be safe. But I didn't, and now it's too late. He wiped his hand over his face, and Rako seized the chance to reach towards his gun. Oi! Before Rako could touch the weapon, Whitlam had set the flame dancing once more. We had a nice arrangement going! All right, Falk said, just keep calm, Scott. He's worried about his family, same as you are. Rako, frozen with one hand outstretched and his face a mask of fear and fury, slowly straightened up. Scott, she's pregnant, he said, looking right at Whitlam. His voice cracked. My wife is due in four weeks. Please, please, just close the lighter. Whitlam's hand shook. Shut up! You can still turn this around, Scott, Fork said. I can't. It's not that simple. You don't understand. Please, Rako said. Think about Sandra and Danielle. Close the lighter and come with us. If you won't do it for yourself, do it for your wife, for your little girl. Whitlam's face twisted, 
and the scratches on his cheek turned an ugly shade as his colour darkened. He tried to take a deep breath, but his chest was heaving. It was for them, he screamed. All of it! This whole mess has been for them! I wanted to protect them! What was I supposed to do? I saw the nail gun. They made me touch it. What choice did I have? Falk didn't know for sure what Whitlam was talking about, but he could guess. Beneath the rising panic, he felt strangely unmoved. Whitlam might be able to justify his actions to himself, but his monstrous acts were spawned by a beast of his own creation. We'll look after them, Scott. We'll take care of Sandra and Danielle. Falk said the names loudly and clearly. Come with us and tell us what you know. We can make them safe. You can't. You can't protect them forever. I can't protect them at all. Whitlam was sobbing now. The flame shook as his grip tightened and Falk's breath caught in his throat. He tried to still the swarm in his mind and think through the danger clearly. Kiwara huddled behind them in the valley with its secrets and its darkness. The school, the livestock, Barb and Jerry Hadler, Gretchen, Rita, Charlotte, McMurdo. He ran frantic calculations. The distances, the number of homes, the routes out. It was no good. Fire could outrun a car, let alone a man on foot. Scott! He shouted. Please don't do this. The kids are still in the school. Your little girl is down there. We saw her ourselves. This whole place is a powder keg. You know that. Whitlam glanced in the direction of the town and Rako and Fork took a fast step forward. Hey! Whitlam barked, waving the lighter. No, no more. Stay back. I'll drop it. Your daughter and those kids will burn to death running for their lives. Fork tried to calm his voice. This town. Scott, listen to me. This town and its people will burn down to the ground. I should be given a bloody medal for putting Kiwara out of its misery. This town is a shit heap. Maybe so, but don't make the kids pay. They'll save the kids. The fireys will go there first. What fireys, you dickhead? Rako yelled. He pointed to the orange jackets dotted about in the bush. They're all out here looking for you. We'll all be killed with you. If you drop that lighter, we're all lost, your wife and your daughter included. I promise you that. Whitlam crumpled forward like he'd been punched in the stomach, the flame wavering in his hand. His eyes flashed with pure fear as they met Forks, and he wailed, raw and primitive. I've lost them anyway. I can't save them. I never could. Better this than what's waiting for us. No, Scott, that's not... And this town! This rotten, ruined place! Whitlam screamed as he raised his hand with the lighter. Kiwara can burn! Now! Fork shouted, and he charged forward with Rako, arms out, pulling the fabric of their jackets wide like a blanket, hurling their bodies on Whitlam as he threw the lighter to the ground. A flash of white heat licked up Fork's chest as they tumbled to the earth rolling, jackets flailing, boots hitting the dirt, ignoring the searing sensation up his calf and thigh. He had a handful of Whitlam's hair and he held it. 
his grip screaming with pain until the hair withered and his hand was raw, pink and craped and holding nothing. They rolled and burned for a thousand hours until a pair of thick gloved hands reached down and hauled Fork back by the shoulders. He gave an animal screech as his raw skin hummed and crackled. A heavy blanket engulfed him and he choked and gulped as water was splashed over his head and face. A second pair of hands dragged him away. He collapsed onto his back and a water bottle was pushed to his lips, but he couldn't swallow. He tried to twist away from the agony until someone held him down gently and he cried out as the pain licked his limbs. The stench of burned flesh hung in his nostrils and he blinked and snorted, eyes watering and nose running. He turned his head to one side, pressing his wet cheek against the earth. Rako was hidden as a wall of vest crouched around him. Fork could see only his boots clearly. He was lying perfectly still. A third group had surrounded a hunched and screaming form. Rako! Fork tried to say, but someone was pressing the bottle to his lips again. He struggled to turn his head away. Rako, mate, you okay? No answer. Help him. Why weren't they moving faster? Jesus, help him! Shh! A woman in a reflective vest said as he was strapped to a gurney. We're doing everything we can. Chapter 41 He would live, the doctors told him when he woke up in the Clyde Hospital burns unit, but his days as a hand model were over. When he was allowed to see the damage, he'd been both fascinated and revolted by his own body. The pale, milky skin had given way to glistening red tissue, weeping and fresh. They bandaged up his hand, arm and leg, and he hadn't looked again. Bedbound, he had a stream of visitors. Jerry and Barb brought Charlotte. McMurdo smuggled in a beer. And Barnes sat by his side for long stretches without saying much. Gretchen didn't visit. Fork didn't blame her. Once allowed up, Fork spent most of his time by Rako's bed as he slept, sedated while they treated major burns on his torso and back. He would also live, the doctors said, but they didn't make any jokes as they had with Fork. Rita Rako pressed one palm to her belly while the other held Fork's good hand as they sat silently by her husband's side. Fork told her that Rako had been brave. Rita just nodded and asked the doctor once more when he would wake up. Rako's brothers arrived from interstate one by one. They looked like variations of the same person. They shook Fork's hand and even as they threw bossy orders at their sleeping brother to get out of bed, he could tell they were terrified. Rako eventually opened his eyes and the doctors ushered Fork out for a full day. Family only. When he was allowed back in, he found Rako flashing a weak but familiar grin beneath his bandages. Real baptism of fire, eh? Falk managed to laugh. <laughs> Something like that. You did well. I had Rita to look out for, but tell me the truth. Rako beckoned him closer. Weren't you a tiny bit tempted to let Kiwara burn to the ground after everything it's done to you? Fork smiled, properly this time. I couldn't do that, mate. My house keys were back at the pub. 
Whitlam had been transferred to the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne, where he was under police custody for a string of charges, including the murders of Luke, Karen and Billy Hadler. He was almost unrecognisable, Falk was told. The fire had caught his hair. He was lucky to be alive. Not so lucky, Falk thought privately. Prison wouldn't be easy for him. When Falk was discharged, he was sent to recuperate under the Hadler's grateful watch. Barb fussed and Jerry was unable to pass him by without shaking his hand. They insisted Falk spend as much time with Charlotte as possible. They told her how he had helped her daddy, brought her real daddy, the good man, the loving husband, back from the dead. Jerry and Barb's son was still gone, but they were lighter somehow. They could look people in the eye again, Falk noticed. Falk went with them to the cemetery. Luke's grave in particular could now barely be seen for fresh flowers. While Barb showed the cards and bouquets to Charlotte, Jerry stood off to one side with Fork. Thank God it had nothing to do with the Deacon girl, Jerry said. I want you to know, I never really thought, I mean, Luke would never have... I know, Jerry. Don't worry. Any idea what happened to her? Fork made a non-committal noise as Barb wandered back. As soon as Fork felt strong enough, he walked all the way to Gretchen's place. She was out the back shooting again, and as he approached, she turned the gun on him and held it for a couple of beats longer than necessary. Gretchen! I'm sorry! Fork called across the field. He held out his hands. That's all I want to say. She looked at his bandages and lowered the gun. She sighed and came closer. I didn't visit you in hospital. I know. I wanted to, but it's okay. Are you okay? She shrugged and they stood in silence, listening to the cockatoos in the trees. She wouldn't look at him. Luke loved Karen, she said eventually. He really did. And before that, Ellie. As she looked around the field, her eyes were wet. I don't think I was ever his first choice. Fork wanted to tell her she was wrong, but knew she was too smart for that. And the day Ellie died, he said. Gretchen's face creased. I always knew Luke had lied for you. Her voice was tight as the tears spilled over. Because he was with me. Did you hear that? Gretchen opened her eyes and squinted at the sunlight filtering through the trees. The scrub grass tickled her back. Hear what? She could feel Luke's breath against her neck as he spoke. He didn't move. His hair was still wet and his voice was sleepy and muffled. Gretchen tried to sit up, but was weighed down by his bare chest pressed against her. Their clothes were in an untidy heap at the base of a tree. They had stripped down to their underwear before diving into the cool river. Gretchen had felt the heat of Luke's body through the water as he kissed her hard and pressed her up against the bank. The underwear had come off and was now drying on a flat rock. The river was high and the water babbled and splashed as it gushed over the rocks downstream. Still, Gretchen heard the noise again. A dry snap deep among the trees. She stiffened. Another one. Oh, shit, she whispered. I 
think someone's coming. She pushed Luke off and he sat up, frowning and blinking. Quick! Gretchen threw his jeans at him and tried to fasten her bra, hooking it wrongly in her haste. Get dressed! Luke gave a wide yawn which turned into a laugh at her expression. All right, I'm moving. He checked that his boxes were the right way round before pulling them on. The path was some distance away and hidden by a thick curtain of trees, but they could hear the footsteps more clearly now. Please, will you get your pants on? Gretchen said. She dragged her top over her wet hair. We should go. It could be anyone. It could be my dad. It's not likely to be your dad, Luke said, but pulled his jeans on all the same. He slipped on his shirt and shoes and they stood shoulder to shoulder in silence, peering through the heavy canopy towards the mouth of the path. Gretchen almost laughed when the slight figure emerged from the tree line. Jesus, it's only Ellie. She almost gave me a heart attack. She realised she was still whispering. The girl was walking fast with her head bowed. At the river she stopped. She stared at the swollen water for a few moments, one hand pressed to her mouth then turned away. Is she down here on her own? Gretchen said, her voice swallowed by the rush of the river. She thought for a moment she heard another snap, but the path beyond Ellie remained empty. Doesn't matter, Luke was whispering. You're right, we should go. He put his hand on her shoulder. Why, let's say hello. I can't be bothered. She's so weird lately. Besides, I'm all wet. Gretchen looked down. Her damp bra had soaked through her shirt. So what? So am I. Let's just go. Gretchen stared at him. The water may have washed away the smell of sex, but the act was written all over his face. Why exactly don't you want her to see us? She said. I don't care if she sees us, Gretch. But he was still whispering. She's a stuck-up bitch. I don't have the energy today. He turned and pushed his way quietly through the trees, away from Ellie. He ignored the path she'd taken, instead heading the opposite way along the small dirt track that led back to Gretchen's parents' farm. Gretchen took a step after him, then turned, looking back towards Ellie. She was beside a strange-looking tree, crouching down with her hand against a rock. What's she doing? Gretchen said, but Luke was gone. When I heard she'd collected stones for her pockets, I didn't sleep for three nights. Gretchen blew her nose on a tissue. I saw her. If I'd gone to her, I could have stopped it, but I didn't. Her words were almost lost in her tears. I left, of course, for Luke. Gretchen caught up to him a short way along the track. Hey! She pulled out his arm. What is going on? Nothing, babe. He took her hand but didn't stop walking. It's just time I got back. Gretchen pulled her hand away. She knows you and I are together, you know. Ellie, I mean, it's not a secret. Yeah, babe, of course I know. So why don't you want her to see us? Why does it matter if the others know we're serious now? It doesn't. Let's drop it, Luke said. But he stopped and turned to face her. He leaned in for a kiss. Look, it doesn't matter, but what we have is so great. I just wanted to stay something special between the two of us. She stepped away. Yeah, right. What's the real reason? 
You think there might be someone better on offer? Gretch, come on. Is that it? Because if so, Ellie's right back there waiting. Luke made a noise in his throat and started walking again. And there are a lot of guys around here who... Don't be like that. His voice floated over his shoulder. She stared after him. She loved those shoulders. What then? He didn't answer. They emerged from the track into the back paddock of her parents' farm and walked in silence to the house. Gretchen knew her mum and sister were still out. She could hear her dad knocking around in the back barn. Luke grabbed his bike from where he'd left it against a tree and climbed on. He stretched out a hand and after a moment, she took it. I want to keep some things between us, he said, looking into her eyes. But there's no point if you're going to act like a princess every time. He leaned in, but she turned her head away from his kiss. He watched her for a moment, then shrugged. She burst into tears as he rode away. Gretchen let the tears slide down her beautiful face for exactly as long as it took her to realise he wasn't coming back. She felt a surge of anger and, wiping her cheeks, ran into the empty house. She snatched up the keys to the farm truck. She hadn't passed her test, but she'd driven around the fields for years. Gretchen jumped behind the wheel and took off in the direction Luke had headed. How dare he treat her like that? She spotted his bike ahead of the crossroads. She pulled the ute back a little, keeping her distance, not yet sure what she would say when she caught him. Up ahead, a car trundled over the crossroads across her path and she touched the brake. A moment later, she flashed through the intersection in her white ute. Luke Handler would not speak to her like that, she told herself. She deserved better. Luke took a sudden left turn and for a heart-stopping moment, she thought he was heading back towards the river and Ellie. If he did that, Christ, she would seriously kill him. She followed at a distance, holding her breath. At the last moment he slowed, guiding his bike into his own driveway. Gretchen stopped some distance away and watched from the road as he opened the front door and went inside. She could see the outline of his mother hanging up washing out the back. She turned the ute and cried all the way back. When I heard Ellie hadn't gone home, I went back to the river myself to check. I half expected to find her holed up with a sleeping bag, keeping out of her dad's way. There was no sign of her. Gretchen chewed her thumbnail. Luke and I argued about whether we should say something, but we weren't really worried at that point, you know. She'd been keeping to herself so much by then. I honestly thought she'd turn up when she was ready. She said nothing for a long moment never once imagined she'd be in that water. She turned to look at Fork. When they said she'd drowned, oh, I couldn't forgive myself. What if we'd stayed and spoken to her? I thought something wasn't right and I'd turn my back. I was so ashamed. I just shut down. I made Luke promise not to tell anyone we'd seen her. I didn't want anyone to know how badly we'd let her down. Gretchen wiped her eyes. Then when I thought things couldn't get worse, everyone started pointing the finger at you. Even Luke got scared. If they thought you were involved, what would they say if they knew we were down there? Luke came up with his plan. 
he'd say he was with you. It would help you, it would help us. And I could pretend for the rest of my life that I hadn't been there, that I hadn't gone to Luke when I should have gone to her. Fork handed Gretchen a clean tissue from his pocket. She took it with a small smile. You're not responsible for what happened to Ellie Deacon, he said. Maybe, but I could have done more. She shrugged and blew her nose. I don't know what it was about, Luke. He wasn't a bad guy, but he was pretty bad for me. They stood side by side for a while and looked out over the fields, both seeing things that were long gone. Fork took a breath. Listen, Gretchen, it's none of my business. But Jerry and Barb and Charlotte, they... Luke's not Lockie's father. But if... Aaron, please, just stop it. Her blue-eyed gaze met his, but only for a moment. Fine. He nodded. He'd tried. Enough. It's okay, Gretch. But they're good people, and they've lost a lot recently. So have you. If there's a chance to rescue something positive from all this misery, you should take it. She said nothing, just stared back at him, her face giving nothing away. Finally, he held out the hand that wasn't burned. She looked at it, then to his surprise reached out and pulled him into a swift hug. Not flirty, not even friendly, but perhaps peaceful. See you in another twenty years, she said. This time, he thought that was probably about right. Chapter 42 Fork's family home now looked even smaller than he remembered both from childhood and a few weeks ago. He set off past it towards the river, skirting around the edges of the property. He wasn't too worried about seeing the owner this time. In the hospital, McMurdo had rolled his eyes as he told Fork how a lot of people had swiftly changed their tune, started to feel downright disapproving of those flyers all of a sudden. Twenty years ago was twenty years ago, for God's sake. Water under the bridge and all that. Fork tramped through the fields his head clearer now. Twenty years was twenty years, but some things shouldn't be swept away. Ellie Deacon. She, more than anyone, had been a victim of this town. Its secrets and lies and fear. She had needed someone. Needed him, maybe. And he had failed her. Ellie was the one at risk of being forgotten in all the chaos. Like Karen nearly was. Like Billy. Not today, Falk thought. Today he would remember Ellie at the place he knew she'd loved. He reached the rock tree as the sun was starting to dip in the sky. It was nearly April now. The summer fierceness was fading away. They said the drought might break this winter. For everyone's sake, he wanted them to be right this time. The river was still gone. He hoped one day it would come back. Fork sat on the rock and pulled out the penknife he'd brought. He found the point where the secret crevice opened and started carving. Tiny letters. E. L. L. The knife was blunt and the going was slow, but he persevered to the end. Finally, he sat back against the rock and wiped his forehead. He ran his thumb over the letters, admiring his handiwork. His burned leg felt like it was on fire from the pressure of kneeling. The pain jogged a thought 
With a grunt, he turned and reached into his crevice, feeling for the ancient lighter he'd left there last time. Nostalgia was one thing, but after recent events, he didn't want to leave temptation around for anyone to find. Fork knew he'd placed it deep, and at first his good hand found nothing but dirt and leaves. He reached in further, stretching out his fingers. He felt the metal of the lighter as his thumb brushed against something soft but solid. He jumped, knocking the lighter away. Annoyed, he reached back in and paused as his hand hit the same object. It was rough but pliable and fairly large. Man-made. Falk peered into the gap. He couldn't see anything and hesitated. Then he thought about Luke and Whitlam and Ellie and all the people who had been hurt by buried secrets. Enough. Falk thrust his hand in and scrabbled around until he got a firm hold. He gave a tug and the object came free with a sudden jerk. He fell backwards, his chest screaming in pain as it landed on him with a thump. He looked down and sucked in a breath when he saw what he was holding. A purple rucksack. It was covered in cobwebs and dirt, but he recognised it at once. Even if he hadn't, he would have known who it belonged to. Only one other person knew about the gap in the rock tree, and she had taken the knowledge with her into the river. Fork opened the bag. Laying the items on the ground, he pulled out a pair of jeans, two shirts, a jumper, a hat, underwear, a small bag of makeup. There was a plastic wallet with an ID of a girl who looked a little bit like Ellie Deacon. It said her name was Shana MacDonald and she was 19. A roll of money, tens, twenties, the occasional fifty even. Saved. Scraped. At the very bottom of the backpack was another item, wrapped 20 years ago in a raincoat to protect it as she packed. He took it out and held it in his hands for a long while. It was tattered and curled around the edges, but the writing beneath the hard-backed cover was there to read, in black and white. Ellie Deacon's Diary. He called her by her mum's name the first time he hit her. She could see in her dad's cloudy eyes that the word had just slid out, as slippery as oil as his fist slammed into her shoulder. He was drunk, and she was fourteen, with looks that were on the turn from child to woman. Her mum's photo had long been removed from the mantelpiece, but the woman's distinctive features were returning to the farmhouse each day as Ellie Deacon grew older. He hit her once, then after a long while it happened again, then again and again. She tried watering down the booze. Her father realised from his first sip, and she never made that mistake again. At home, she wore tops that showed her bruises, but her cousin Grant just turned on the TV and told her to stop winding up her old man. Her schoolwork deteriorated. If the teachers noticed, it was with a sharp comment about her lack of attention. They never asked why. Ellie began to speak less and discover more what both her parents liked so much about bringing a bottle to their lips. The girls she thought were friends looked at her strangely and whispered when they thought she couldn't hear. They had enough problems of their own, with their skin and weight and boys, without Ellie making them look even more out of place. A few teenage tactical moves later, and Ellie found herself out in the cold. 
She'd been on her own in Centenary Park on a Saturday night with a bottle in her bag and nowhere else to be when she'd heard the two familiar figures laughing in low voices from the bench. Aaron and Luke. Ellie Deacon felt a flutter by finding something she'd forgotten but once held close. It took them all a little getting used to. The boys looked at her like they had never seen her before, but she liked it. Having two people in her life doing as she said, rather than telling her what to do, suited her fine. When they were much younger, she had preferred Luke's exhilaration and bravado, but now she found herself more drawn to Aaron's subtle thoughtfulness. Luke was nothing like her dad and cousin, she knew that, but she couldn't shake the feeling that hidden deep in his fabric there was a small part of him not completely unlike them either. It was almost a relief when Gretchen turned his head at least part of the way with her radiant siren call. For a while it was good. More time with her friends meant less time at home. She got a part-time job and learned the hard way to hide her money from her cash-strapped dad and cousin. She was happier, but it made her careless and cocky around her dad. It wasn't long before her 16-year-old face, with a smart mouth shaped so much like her mother's, was forced against a couch cushion until she thought she would pass out. A month later, a filthy tea towel was pulled across her nose and mouth while she clawed at her dad's hands. When at last he let go, her frantic first intake of air smelled like the booze on his breath. That was the day Ellie Deacon stopped drinking. Because that was the day she decided she would run. Not immediately, and not from one bad situation to something worse, but soon. And for that, she would need a clear head, before it was too late. The catalyst came in the middle of a dark night as she awoke in her room to find his weight on top of her and his jabbing fingers everywhere. A stab of pain and his souse voice slurring her mother's name in her ear. Finally, mercifully, she was able to push him off, and as he left he shoved her hard, sending her head snapping backwards and connecting with a crack against her bedpost. In the morning light, she ran her finger over the dent in the wood and groggily scrubbed the spot of blood from the pink carpet. Her head was aching. She felt the sting of tears. She didn't know where she hurt most. When Aaron discovered the gap in the rock tree the next afternoon, it was like a sign from above. Run. It was hidden, secret, and big enough to conceal a bag. It was perfect. Filled with a tentative spark of hope, she had looked at Aaron's face and let herself realise for the first time how much she would miss him. When they'd kissed, it made her feel better than she thought she could, until his hand reached up and touched her sore head. she jerked away in pain. She looked up and saw the dismayed look on Aaron's face and at that moment hated her dad almost as much as she ever had. She wanted so badly to tell Aaron, more than once, but of all the emotions surging through Ellie Deacon's body, the most acute was fear. She knew she wasn't the only person frightened of her father. His payback for any slight, real or perceived, was swift and brutal. She had seen him issue his threats then carry them out. Hoard favours, poison fields, run over dogs. 
In a community struggling to survive, people had to pick their battles. When every card was on the table, Ellie Deacon knew there was not one person in Kiwara she could truly rely on to stand up to him. So she made her plan. She took her saved up money and she quietly packed a bag. She hid it by the river, in the place where she knew it wouldn't be found, waiting for her when she was ready. She booked a room in an anonymous motel three towns away. They'd asked for a name for the reservation, and she automatically said the only one that made her feel safe. Fork. On a piece of notepaper, she scribbled his name and the date she had chosen and slipped it into the pocket of her jeans. A talisman for luck. A reminder not to back out. She had to run, but she only had one chance. If my dad finds out, he will kill me. They were the last words she wrote in her diary. There was no smell of dinner in the air when Mal Deacon let himself into the farmhouse and he felt a hot flash of irritation. He kicked Grant's boots off the couch and his nephew opened one eye. No bloody tea on yet? Ellie's not back from school. Deacon snapped a beer from the six-pack by Grant's side and went through to the rear of the home. He stood at his daughter's bedroom door and took a swig from the can. It wasn't his first of the day, or his second. His eyes flicked to the white bedpost with the dent in the wood and the mark on the pink carpet below, and he frowned. Deacon felt a cold spot form in his chest like a tiny ball bearing. Something bad had happened there. He stared at the dent and a grotesque memory threatened to emerge. He took a long drink until it slid back silently beneath the shadowy surface. Instead, he allowed the alcohol to carry the first tendrils of anger through his veins. His daughter was supposed to be here and she wasn't. She was supposed to be here with him. She might be late, a rational voice barely whispered. But then he'd seen the way she'd been looking at him lately. It was a look he recognised well, the same look he'd seen five years earlier, a look that said, Enough. Goodbye. He felt an acid wave surge through him, and suddenly he was slamming upon her wardrobe door. Her backpack was gone from its usual spot. The shelves showed one or two gaps in the neatly folded clothes. Deacon knew the signs. Her sneaking around, keeping secrets, he'd missed them once before, not again. He wrenched drawers out of the dresser, upending the contents on the floor, his beer spilling on the carpet as he rifled through for clues. Suddenly, he stopped still. He knew with cold certainty where she'd be. The same place her bloody mother used to run. Little bitch. Little bitch! He staggered back to the living room, hauled a reluctant Grant to his feet and thrust the truck keys at him. We're going to get Ellie. You're driving. Little bitch, little bitch. They took a couple of cans for the road. The sun burned orange as they tore along the dirt tracks towards the Forks place. No way was she leaving. Not this time. He was wondering what he would do if it was already too late, when he caught a glimpse and his heart jumped in his throat. A single sudden movement as a pale T-shirt and familiar flash of long hair disappeared into the tree line beyond the Forks place. She's there, Deacon pointed, heading towards the river. I didn't see anything, Grant frowned, but he pulled the truck to a stop.
Deacon jumped out, leaving his nephew behind as he ran across the field and plunged into the shadows of the trees. His vision was tinted red as he stumbled along the path in pursuit. She was bending over by an odd-shaped tree when he caught her. Ellie heard the noise too late and looked up, the perfect O of her mouth gaping wide in a scream as he grabbed her hair. Little bitch! Little bitch! She wouldn't leave. She wouldn't bloody leave this time. But she was writhing, he noticed through his haze, and it was making it hard to hold her. So he clubbed her with an open palm around the head. She staggered and fell backwards, landing with a soft groan on the edge of the bank, her hair and shoulders dipping into the black river water. Her eyes were looking at him in that way he recognised, and he thrust a hand under her chin until the murky water covered that face. She'd fought when she realised what was happening. He stared at his own eyes reflected back at him in that dark river and held her harder. He'd had to promise the farm to Grant as they searched the bank in the dying light for stones to weigh her down. He had no choice, especially once his nephew found the note with Fork's name on it in her pocket. Suggested it might be a useful item to leave in Ellie's room. They searched until the last of the light disappeared, but they never did find her backpack. It was only much later, when he was alone that first night and for many nights to come, that Mal Deacon wondered if he'd meant to hold his daughter quite so tightly. If my dad finds out, he will kill me. Fork sat for a long time after reading Ellie's words, staring out at the empty river. At last, he shut the diary and zipped it back into the bag with the other possessions. He stood and slung the backpack over his shoulder. The sun was gone, and the night had fallen around him, he realised. Above the gum trees, the stars were bright. He wasn't worried. He knew the way. As he walked back to Kiwara, a cool breeze blew. Thank you for listening. You just finished The Dry by Jane Harper, read for you by Stephen Shanahan. If you liked what you heard, you can keep up with Aaron Falk in Jane Harper's new thriller, Exiles, on sale in January. Find it wherever books or audiobooks are sold. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.